Good afternoon. I'm Brent Holland and welcome. Welcome to today's show. This afternoon, living history, the Jonestown Massacre. Mark Lane was there. He witnessed it all and he survived it. Jonestown, Guyana, November 1978. 900 People's Temple members died there in a murder-suicide by cyanide poisoning. The People's Temple folks was led by a man by the name of Jim Jones. He led a cult and moved 900 people from his church in San Francisco down to this little parcel of land in Guyana. Rumors were abound that people were being kept there against their will. To go down and investigate these rumors, a fellow by the name of Congressman Leo Ryan gathered together some aides and some press people, flew down on a little airplane in the middle of the jungle, went in to the camp and discovered, indeed, people were being kept against their will. Things turned very ugly at that point, and the congressman virtually fled to get back to the airplane to get out of there and report what he had seen. Unfortunately, he had been followed by several people under the orders of Jim Jones and was assassinated before the plane could escape. Mark Lane was still in the camp. Now, late in the afternoon, two men wielding rifles approached Lane and told him bluntly he was to be executed. While waiting for his execution, Lane started to hear the cries of children and the gunshots less than 200 yards from where he stood. This was only the beginning of the long black night of murder at Jonestown. Mark Lane. Guards come up and say, you're both under revolutionary arrest and you'll be executed. And they took us to a cabin. And by then, they, they started killing people up there. It was only, I was only about 200 yards away. In the cabin, I heard they broadcast it all on a microphone saying, we all have to die. It's revolutionary suicide. People were screaming, you know, they were forced to drink poison. Some were shot when they tried to leave. And I heard all of that. And then these two guys said, we're all going to die. This afternoon, living history, lawyer Mark Lane and the Jonestown Massacre and how he survived it, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, we're speaking with living history today, Mark Lane. I am so excited to have this guy. This man has been in the thick of it. He's been right there, center stage. He was the lawyer for Jim Jones in 1978, of course, which we're going to get into next, Jonestown, the People's Temple, and AIM uprising in 1973 at Wounded Knee. But let's continue and let's go right into now Jonestown. really wasn't his lawyer. He was represented by Charles Gary for many, many years. I never even heard of Jonestown. 
in September, before the uh, murders took place in November, in September, the massacre took place in November, in September, I had not heard of Jonestown or Jim Jones two months before. And I got a phone call from someone at Jonestown, from the Jonestown organization. She was in the office in San Francisco, asking me if I would come down and present a lecture on the Martin Luther King assassination hmm. in Jonestown. And I said, what is Jonestown? And then I talked to Donald Freed, who was a well-known author, playwright, teacher, and he had been there, and I knew him. I said, tell me about it. And he said, it's really a remarkable place, and it's in the middle of this jungle, and they're in Guyana, and they have a medical facility, and they have schools and everything. Mostly black Americans are there, and a lot of people have been abused who ended up there, and Jones is a charismatic leader of the group. I said, okay. I said, who else has been there? He said, well, Merv Dimley. Now, I knew Merv Dimley. Merv Dimley was a member of Congress, an African-American member of Congress in California. He was a friend of mine. So I called Merv. I said, you've been there? He said, yes. What do you think? And he also had a very positive view. And then I did a little research and found out he had met with, let's see, almost every major leader of both parties. He was met with Jimmy Carter's wife, Rosalind, and That's he right. was mm -hmm. present with Jimmy Carter. And he was just a guy who had a church in Ukiah, California, and was very well respected. He moved to San Francisco. He became the housing commissioner for the city of San Francisco. This was a high position in government. And so he had all of these credentials. So I said, okay, I'll go down there and lecture on the, on the King assassination. I did. I went there and I lectured and uh, in September, and that was that. And then he said to me, Joan said, you know, uh, I don't really trust Charles Gary, who's my lawyer, and I believe the CIA is going to try to destroy us. And I would like you to find out what you can about that. Can you do anything? He was quite nervous and very frightened. I said, why would they want to destroy you? He said... We came here to set this up. It's not working. We've done everything we can to build an agricultural community here. But, you know, bats come out of the jungle and bite the nipples off of the nursing pigs and cows. And they just kind of worms in the soil, destroy the vegetables. It was just like in the middle of the jungle, they were trying to make it in Iowa or something. And it didn't work there. He said, so we've been meeting with the Soviet embassy here in Georgetown, Guyana, the capital. Some of our people have been up there already, basketball players from our team, from our community and entertainers have gone there and we are planning to all move to the Soviet Union. I said they're going to have a, a religious community in the Soviet Union. It's a country that doesn't recognize religion, uh, doesn't approve of it, certainly. And he said, no, no, we're not going to go as a unit. We're all going to go and go to different places and do various different things. But a thousand Americans, mostly black, are going to leave, you know, Guyana, they're all American citizens, and they're going to go live in the Soviet Union. And we know that's going to be something which the government of the United States is not going to like when we say we found freedom in the Soviet Union, which we couldn't find in America. So um, I said, well, don't do anything rash. I'll, I'll see what I can do under the Freedom of Information Act, etc. And so I was looking into that one subject for him, at which point there was a campaign led by a guy named Timothy Stone to have uh, an investigation into and the destruction of Jonestown. And he said it himself, he's going to, we're going to destroy him, we have to get armed bands, we're going to go in there, we're going to kill him, we're going to destroy this whole group. And it's a long, involved story. That I wrote a book about this called The Strongest Poison, has all of the tales, which I won't bore everybody with now. In any event, what happened next was in November, Stone was able to convince Congressman Leo Ryan to conduct an inquiry into it. And so he was going there. At that point, the Jones people called me and said, please get down there. Really important because we 
think this is going to be provocation to cause violence, and we want to prevent that. And Jones, trust you, would you go down and try to calm everybody down and make sure that nothing happens? And I said, well, I can't. I'm occurring before a committee of Congress on the question of the King assassination. And I was. And I was happy that I was. I didn't want to go there. That committee meeting was canceled publicly. When that happened, they called me back and said, okay, you're free now. I said, all right, okay. I went down there. I met Congressman Ryan. I really like Congressman Ryan a great deal. We went into uh, Jonestown together, he and his group, and we went by truck. We flew to Port Kaituma, the airport, from Georgetown to Port Kaituma, and then by truck into uh, Jonestown. And um, what had happened was the CIA, here we go again, the CIA had actually, through the American Embassy in Georgetown, Guyana, had taken many requests from the United States from people who said their parents were there, unlike other cult-like organizations where the the, uh, children were there. And the parents were concerned about it here. The parents were there, and the children were concerned about it. A number of the children were. And they had written to various members of Congress and asked for an investigation, and they wrote to the American Embassy. And the um, officer in charge would call Jones in advance, tell him when they were coming, tell him who he wanted to interview, and tell him he could have his friends present during the interview. Well, obviously, that's no way to, if you're afraid that people are under compulsion and can't believe, you don't have them surrounded by folks listening and you don't give the names in advance, and you don't have Jones present, but this is what happened in every case. So the embassy reported back, no, everything, people say everything's okay, they have no problem. Of course, if they said they had a problem, it would be a problem for them at that point, mm-hmm. after the guy left. So uh, that obviously was no way to conduct an inquiry, and they knew it. In any event, they advised Ryan. Now, Ryan wrote a bill, which became law, and bears his name, along with another member of Congress, which really limited the Central Intelligence Agency very sharply. It was one which talked about the CIA acting on its own. It should do, do only presidential approvals, etc., and built a lot of safeguards in, which all of which have been ignored, but at least it was a law which said they could do it, and the CIA did not like, CIA did not like Congressman Bryan. He was leading the delegation to go in there. In fact, he was the delegation. And he went in there, and he actually then gave them, he said, I want to talk to this person, that person, and the people in Jonestown, the leadership was just horrified that Jones was going to react very badly. And I said, well, what's wrong? You know he's going to come in. They said, yeah, but we didn't have the names in advance and he says he's going to meet with them with just a member of his staff present and nobody else was allowed to listen. This could be terrible. People might decide they want to leave. And I said, listen, if they want to leave, they should leave. They shouldn't be compelled to stay please. They said, well, even if one person leaves, that will be used against us and it will destroy us. I said, that doesn't make any sense. A thousand people living here in the jungle for years, they're used to living in urban areas. I mean, obviously, in ghettos, it's not pleasant, but there's a McDonald's and there's TV, and there's things that you don't find here. In any event, a number of people said they wanted to leave. Not very many, just a few. Jones was getting agitated and very upset. By then, when I talked to him, it seemed to me he was on drugs of some kind. Mm-hmm. He was... He was quite irrational, different from... Uh, I saw a film of him when we were in there speaking. I didn't realize it was him. From Ukiah, California, he was a very charismatic, together, powerful speaker, and I was sitting right next to him. And I said to someone on my left, one of the women there who was a lawyer living down there in the commune, I said, who is that man? And she just laughed. And then I realized it was Jones. And he was sitting next to me, and I didn't recognize him. Wow. It changed a great deal. I mean, it just it 
deteriorated, and he's kind of nuts by then. And he was being driven crazy by this attack on him, which was repeated over and over and over. The way this began was with Stone, who was his... Stone was an assistant district attorney in Ukiah, California. And Jones would say to the congregation, this is before they went to Jonestown, Jones would say to the congregation, listen, if anybody has any complaints about me, and you ever talk to the police or anything like that, here is Tim Stone, my right-hand man, he's a district attorney, I'll know about it before anybody else does. And his, the DA is going to enforce what we want to have happen. So he used Stone, and Stone did it willingly <laughs> to keep people in line, even in California. And then Stone visited Jones one day in California and said, my wife and I would like to have a baby, and we'd like you to be the father. I know this seems bizarre, but about this is no question. It's all absolutely documented. Stone admits all this. I have the affidavit from Stone where he sets it all forward. And uh, we'd like you to be the father. And Jones was very happy to comply. They had a baby. And then later, Stone and his wife separated, and the wife said she wanted to have her child. And Stone said, the only place that's safe for you, there's no extradition treaty, is you've got to go to Jonestown, and you'll be perfectly safe there. So that's why Jones went to Jonestown. It had been a community there, but he wasn't living there. So he went there with his baby, with the child, so that the child could not be taken from him. And everybody knew that Jones was so paranoid even before that, but certainly he didn't want anything that belonged to him to be taken away, certainly not his own child. That's why he went down there. Then, when he was ensconced in there, Stone then led the campaign to get his child, and the Guyanese government said they might extradite him and send him to the United States, and there was a big discussion about that. That's when they decided, among other reasons, to get out of there and go to Soviet Union where they would be all together if they wanted to be, or separate cities if they wanted to do that, pursue different vocations or professions. So Jones was there, Brian came in, and there was one family where, and this was, took place that evening, and first evening, Brian was there, and Brian made a speech that evening. He said, I see how happy you, so many of you are here. I just, just wish you were in my district so you could, some of you are from my district, I wish you were there now so you could vote for me. And he had really good feelings. And he said to me later, you know, this is a remarkable place. There's only one thing wrong with it. I said, what's wrong with it? He said, Jones, because I think there's some people who want to leave, and they told me they want to leave, and they're going to go out with me, but why wouldn't they be allowed to leave before? I think it's a really remarkable thing that they've done here, but I think Jones is the biggest problem here. And I said, I agree. At that point, we were talking, and then there was a family where the mother and father had a daughter, and she was engaged to a, a young man, and the young man and the daughter wanted to leave. The parents did not want to leave, and they were concerned about what would happen. So they talked to Jones, and Jones said, after Ryan goes, wait a week, and then you can leave if you want. But don't go now. It'll be a big victory for Stone. It'll destroy us. So they said, what's your advice, Mr. Lane? Can you guarantee that we'll be able to leave in two weeks or a week from now? And I said, I won't be here, and even if I were, I don't control anything that happens here, so I can't guarantee anything. Well, what should we do? I said, if you really want to leave, you should leave now. And I turned around, there was Jones staring at me. Oh he heard the God. conversation. And he then said, at that point, he decided that I had to be executed. He said that later. Then, later on that day, while I was talking to Ryan in the middle of this big uh, outdoor arena, which had a roof and everything, but it was an outdoor operation, a man came up and grabbed him in a chokehold from behind. He was a white man, which was important because there were very few white men in there. And I didn't see this guy before, and I thought he must have come with Ryan and a second truckload. I don't know how he got there, but he had him around the neck, and Ryan said, okay, that's enough fooling around. And Ryan took it so casually, I figured he must know the guy. Then the guy took out a, a knife, like a bayonet, and started pressing into Ryan's chest. 
And when I saw that, I leaped forward, I grabbed the guy's wrist and wrestled with him, knocked him down, and Ryan fell flat on his back. I had a cut in my hand. It wasn't bleeding badly, and it was blood on Ryan's shirt. He had a blue, he had a blue button-down Oxford shirt open at the back no time and he was lying on his back and his blood on the shirt so I ripped the shirt open and he had not been wounded he was almost in a state of shock but he had not been wounded I didn't know where the blood came from it didn't come from me I had just a little blood from me there was more on his shirt than there was coming from me so I picked him up and we sat down at the bench and he and Jones said does this change everything and Ryan said yes and I looked at him like don't say that please and he said well no, I'll put this in my report, but you can be mugged any place in, in, in the United States as well, so it doesn't change everything. At that point, I said to Leo, I, I said, I think you should leave. Let's get on that truck and get out of here. And he said, I promised people I would help to process them out. There's still a few people I haven't talked to, so I can't leave. He said, unless you will stay behind and process them out. <laughs> At which point, Don Harris, who's an old friend of mine from NBC Television, came back. They had been there filming. Mm-hmm. They came in with Ryan, and they were leaving. And then all of a sudden, they heard all of this. They came running, and John Harris had his camera crew. And I said, "Don't bring the camera crew." For the first time, anybody in the media ever paid any attention to any direction from me. And he said, "Okay, Mark." He told him to leave, and then we all helped. I agreed to stay with Charles Gary, who was really Jones's lawyer for many years, and we walked Jones back to the uh, truck, and he left to safety we thought and then I went back into the place and Jones had guards come up and say you're both under to Gary and to me you're under revolutionary arrest and you'll be executed and they took us to a cabin stay there and then there were two guys there who I'd seen before and they were there and then there was the other guy this white guy his hand was all bandaged up obviously he, he had been cut by the day that, that's where all the blood came from his hand was all bandaged up and he came down and then he left and these two guys came there to young black guys who I'd met two months before in September when I talked about the King assassination and by then they started killing people up there it was only I was only about 200 yards away in the cabin I heard they broadcast it all on a microphone saying we all have to die it's revolutionary suicide people were screaming no they were forced to drink poison some were shot they tried to leave and I heard all of that and then these two guys said um, we're all going to die. Come on out, out, Mark and Charles. We're going to Charles said, I'm not going out there. Said, Listen, there's a bamboo hut. They got automatic weapons out there. You know, there's no sanctuary in here. We're lawyers. Let's talk. That's all we can do. And we went out and they said, we're all going to die. It's revolutionary suicide. They said, they're killing little children up here. He said, we have to struggle against fascism. I said, that is fascism. He said, we have to die. It's revolutionary suicide. I said, well, at least you know that Charles and I will tell the truth to the world about what happened here. And one of them said, yes, I read your book about the King assassination after you talked to Okay, tell the world the truth. I said, how do we get out of here? And I know how to get back to the main place, possibly the pavilion, but that's where everybody was getting killed. And it was not the way to go. And he said, you should just cross that river and hit for that big pine tree there, and you can find the road in the middle of this jungle, unpassable jungle. And so I said, let's go, Charles. And he said, we can't go on that river. There are piranha in there. I you care about, I use the expletive, fish actually you're killing people right there so we ran in and ran across the street and it wasn't very deep and uh, there may have been piranha in there but they, they, they weren't in right where we were obviously because we got it and then we headed for it and then we finally found the road this jungle was getting dark then and we heard people coming down the path toward us and there were guys with guns we saw them so i said let's run we ran into the jungle i don't know maybe 100 yards and then it got dark everything had disappeared we couldn't see anything it was total black it was a triple cap 
thing. And in the morning, Charles wants to talk. He said, so you really think Oswald wasn't the lone assassin? I said, Charles, I don't want to talk about that. He said, I thought you were interested in the Kennedy assassination. I said, I'm interested in figuring out how we get out of here when it's light. He said, I know how to get out. Just go that direction. I said, I can't see what your point is. too dark. But how do you know that? He said, well, I've been in the forest before. I said, this is not a forest. I said, where? He said, like in a park in San Francisco. I said, it's not a forest. This isn't a park. This is an uninhabitable jungle. And uh, it's dark here, even when it's light. I don't know. We're, we're about a hundred yards from the road, but people get lost and died because they go in the wrong direction. Let me just think about what we can do. He said, you don't want to talk about the Kennedy assassination? I said, no, I want to talk about getting out of here. I had a little package, a little uh, knapsack that I had with me, and I... Because I wanted the last minute, I stopped off at JFK, the airport, the little shop there, and I bought a little scissors, Hamakashwam, little scissors. I don't know why, just would be a nice thing in my kit. And I also bought some underwear, because I didn't have any time to pack. Jeez, sure, white underwear. I said, I got an idea. He said, what I'm saying, I cut this up as soon as it's light here, and we'll post these things every few feet, and we'll go in any direction you think is best. But after we do that, if we don't find the road after like 150 yards, we'll go back to that same headquarters, which is where we are now, and pick up all the white strips, and we'll go in a different direction. And eventually, using that method, we have to hit the road. And uh, that's what we did the third time we found the road and started walking down it. By then, everyone had been killed up there, and the guy in his police force came up, and the uh, New York Times had reported that I had died in Jamestown. And... Um, my parents, my father was uh, upset, but he said, I don't believe it. But my sister and brother said, did you read the Times? And they told him what it said. He said, I don't believe it. Mark can talk his way out of it. <laughs> so uh, we got into uh, Jonestown, and uh, from Jonestown, we got into Port Kaituma, and then into Georgetown, and I called home and just told everybody I was all right. You know the name Dick Gregory? Sure, of course. Okay, Dick Gregory yes. is a dear friend of mine. When he ran for president in 1968, I ran for vice president on his ticket, Peace and Freedom ticket. In any event, he had called my law partner as soon as he heard this, and she was quite hysterical. And he said, listen, I just picked up a Bible, and it said, he shall be redeemed or something like that. Which, which, something which meant to him that I was okay and I would be safe. And he said, but just to make sure, I've rented a jet. I'm going to pick you up first thing tomorrow, and we're flying down to uh, Georgetown where they kick ass until they get Mark out of there. And uh, I got there just as, just before the plane took off to tell Gregory and my partner, April Ferguson, and, and my family that uh, I was okay. Thank but, God. Uh, he's a dear friend of mine, and you can imagine why he is <laughs> a dear yes, friend of mine. absolutely. And I don't know anybody else who's going to get a jet and fly down there to talk to the guy in his government. In any event, that's part of the Jonestown story. Oh, Mark, I've been purposely quiet because I have been riveted to this seat, listening on every word. You have just taken us right through that disaster, that massacre in Jonestown. And I want to thank you for that. That brings it, this is living history, folks. It's brought it right to your own reality between your own ears, listening to him tonight. So fellow was right there and saw and heard everything of that terrible, terrible night. How did you feel um, when they came to assassinate you? Did you think that you could survive it? Of course not. I thought I was going to try. And I tell you, I was. Yes, I, I knew. I didn't know any of the people at Jonestown really well. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I say, I was there in September for I think two days, and then I was there in November for two days. But I met a lot of those people. 
people. And the kids and the parents, and they're mostly black Americans who mm-hmm. felt that, you know, life in the United States was so horrible for them. The ghettos, there's no education. The kids were getting killed, shot in the street. Well, they became drug addicts. The girls became mm-hmm. hookers. Life was really horrible for so many of them. And many of them were abused. Many of the women had been abused. And they just went into the middle of the jungle and decided it was better than where they had been in the United States and and the the horrible conditions they were facing in the ghetto. And I met them, and I really had a lot of respect for them, and I understood what their plight was and why they took that terrible step. And and when I heard heard what was happening up there, I mean, my thoughts were about them and those little kids I had met. And... um, then I, and I didn't know if, if Jones was serious. I mean, he was, he was, they had practiced, I heard this much later, from people who had been in, in Jones, in, in that organization, but were not in Jonestown that day, people back in the United States, that he had practiced something called the White Knight, where they planned this whole operation where everybody would drink poison. He actually did drink stuff, but it wasn't poison. And so, I, so maybe that was... Uh, he had a test run one New Year's Eve where he had everybody drink Kool-Aid, yeah. told them all it was poison, and then reassured them that it wasn't. Because he couldn't be sure what he was planning. He was nuts by then anyway, mm. and he couldn't be sure. But uh, it did seem to me like they were all dying up there, and I did hear shots. And <sighs> of course, they did die. Over 900 Americans died that day. One of the worst tragedies. And the United States government said to the guy, and he's a big, uh, big with the bulldozer, big, big trench and put all the bodies in there. And the Ghanaians refused to do it. Uh, they refused. They said they have to take them. Until finally, the United States government agreed to take them back to Dover Air Force Base, which is where everybody goes from the, all the wars. And when they're dead, all the bodies go. And so uh, they had burials in the United States, but that's not was not what the government wanted to do at first. In any event, yeah, I mean, of course, I was really terrified when they were pointing guns at us, but... Uh, I was just thinking about what it is we could do maybe to get out of this. I wasn't very hopeful, but I knew I was going to try. Oh, my God. One of the worst disasters in the world, and you lived through it, and you witnessed it. Wow. Are you a religious person, Mark? I'm a religious person. I don't believe in the rituals Fair of, enough. of religion, but I believe in the concept of religion. Did that evening in the jungle, did that solidify your faith in a higher being, a higher power, and more, did that give you more affirmation, if you will? No. Ah. Except, I read this in a novel a few years ago about a guy who was Catholic. It was mm-hmm. a detective. It was a made-up story. Mm-hmm. It, it was a, as I said, a novel. It was a detective who was Catholic, and he, his wife was brutally beaten and killed, and he lost his faith, apparently, and his good friend was a priest, and the priest said to him one day, you know, I'd like you to meet with me. I'd like to try to restore your faith. He said, what? What faith? He said, your belief in God. He said, I believe in God. I just don't like him. And if there was a God who uh, watched Jonathan, my first question would be, why? Yeah. Did it happen? Yeah. Why did you let it happen? Yeah. So uh, I have mixed feelings about these matters. It's uh, like the Holocaust. The same idea, you know. Exactly. Yeah, he's got a lot to answer for when I get up there, boy. I'm going to question him on mass. Got he's 50. Yeah. <laughs> but he's always busy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. What, what he's doing, I'm not sure about. Yes, yeah, uh, you know, is he on vacation this week, you know? <laughs> What an incredible story from Mark Lane. Mark Lane has been in the thick of things, folks. He's been at center stage of history all his life. Coming up, we continue with Mark Lane. This is going to turn out to be a four-part series. 
this second part, Mark Lane tells the story of when he was the lawyer for the American Indian Movement at Wounded Knee in 1973. Mark Lane represented AIM, the American Indian Movement. Wait till you hear his story. Mark Lane. Well, first of all, we uncovered evidence that the FBI had wiretapped our conversations with our clients. And although the FBI denied that it had ever taken place, we asked for a hearing and we put his name was Trimback, Joseph Trimback, on the stand. And he said he had never been involved in wiretapping, never even filed an application, wouldn't even know what an application for a legal wiretap looked like because he never was involved in any of that. I then produced several documents which he had signed, which were applications made out by him for legal wiretapping in other cases. I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Brent Holland. See you next time. Thank you.